Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, good evening, church. Um, If you are new with us or online, my name is Aaron. I've got the great privilege of being the pastor of our church, and we've been in a journey through Ephesians. And what we've really been journeying through is this author named Paul is a missionary in the city named Ephesus, and he started a church there. And so what he's been teaching us is what the gospel is and then how the gospel affects every area of our life. And so we've been looking at how to walk in the light of the gospel, walk in the wisdom of the gospel. How does the gospel affect our relationships in the church? And then today, as we just read together, we're going to see how the gospel affects marriage. How does the gospel impact marriage? Now, as we just read, some of that scripture might have some of those words that made us feel uncomfortable. We saw what words like submit and to sacrifice. And these things can be hard words. And we've got to give each other grace as we walk through this passage. This passage has often been used for a lot of hurt and a lot of abuse in marriage. And what we want to do today is see God's intent in this passage. We want to see his heart. And what I really want you to see is that this passage actually isn't really about you and I. It's not really about marriage. This passage is really about how God through Christ loves and sacrifices and gave himself for the church. And so marriage, we're going to learn, is really a a metaphor. It's a living picture of the gospel. And that's exactly what this whole book is teaching us. What is the gospel and what's it have to do with our life? And so if you're taking notes, here's the title of today's passage. How does the gospel impact marriage? And we're going to answer that question in three ways here just in a moment. But let's back up for a quick second. And we need to see sort of the framework for this passage. It sort of just kind of jumps in there and it starts talking about the wife's role or the husband's role in in marriage. But let's back up for a second and let's look at the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is teaching a people for maybe one of the first times we see him teach about marriage. And Jesus shares with us his definition of marriage. And the roots of his definition come from Genesis chapter 2 when God actually first defined marriage and he gave it as an idea and as a gift to humanity. And he really tells us this. He says that biblical marriage is when a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And then the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but they're one. And he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, in this definition that Jesus gives us, he's really painting that marriage is designed to be a lifelong commitment. One where one man and one woman decide to commit the rest of their lives to the mutual love of each other and to their unity, right? And to their devotion to one another. But this is no doubt, what I just read, a controversial definition in our modern day where marriage is defined and redefined in all types of ways. But the the, the question this text brings up is not, what does God say about marriage? 
but why does God say this about marriage? Like, why does he design it to be a lifelong commitment? Or why did he design it to be between one man and one woman and not multiple spouses or same-gendered spouses? So many tough questions that you and I in our modern era really have wrestled with. He gives the definition of marriage here, but what about its purpose? Like he gave us what is marriage, but what about why marriage? And we all want to know this true meaning of marriage, don't we? There's lots of cultural conversations or relational conversations. And so what is the meaning of it? And if we have that, then maybe we could understand the why Jesus defines it the way he does. Well, today we come to Ephesians chapter 5. And we start in verse 21 because that really gives us the framework of the entire passage. I want to give this to you and I want to share with you a little bit about the purpose and meaning of marriage that's revealed here. We actually finally see the why of marriage loud and clear. Would you look again at verse 31 and we'll have it on screens or online for you. Here's verse 31. Here's the meaning of marriage. He says, therefore, he's reaching back to Jesus' definition here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then here we go. He says, this mystery about the why, why did God create this? Why did he give us this definition? This mystery is profound, but guess what? Now it's known. And Paul's saying, and I am saying that it, meaning marriage, refers to Christ and the church. And you could imagine being in the first century at a church hearing this for the first time and your mind is like, explosion. You're like, what? Marriage has been a metaphor of God's love for his people and how his people respond to him and their minds are blown. Listen, the first thing we're going to see is this. If you're taking notes, the gospel reveals the purpose of marriage and it's to display the covenant love between Christ and his church. Guys, this passage reveals that God designed marriage to really be a living metaphor. One for us to delight in personally and display out publicly. A living metaphor where the husband is called to live out for his wife the unconditional love and sacrificial leadership that Jesus has for his people, the church. And the wife is to live out for her husband the, li- the loving faithfulness and joyful service that the church gives to its savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let me pause for a moment and say this. By no means am I saying that the husband is to be treated like he is Jesus. The wives should not be worshiping their husbands or singing songs of worship to them or acting like they are deity. That should not be the case. And also, we don't believe that husbands have to salvifically save their wives from sin like Jesus does. But what we're seeing is that there's a metaphor tucked into this relationship. In other words, the true meaning of marriage is this. It's to further delight in and then to display and then to declare this never-ending, always-giving, forever-and-always 
unconditional love that Christ has for you, his people. Do you know what this means? This means that if you're single, you don't have to be married to live out this metaphor because singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. You have a metaphor too, whether you're set to be single for life out of your desire or you're currently single, desire to be married, you still have a metaphor for you. It's not that marriage gets the prized metaphor, but in marriage, there's the metaphor of sacrifice that's in the gospel. But as a single, you get the metaphor of sufficiency, meaning that Christ and Christ alone is good enough to be loved and to be valued and to be significant. Does that make sense? So I want to make sure we understand this church that you're no better if you're married and you're no better if you're single. You both get a metaphor that all of this is, has nothing to do with actually being married or being single, does it? has everything to do with God's love for his people. And we get to be defined by this love. We get to be defined by it personally. And then if we're married, we get to point to it maritally in our relationship. If we're single, we point to its sufficiency in our singleness and we display God's love to the world. Whether we're married or we're single, we're telling something about God. Why? Because marriage really isn't about us after all. It's a good thing. It's a gift, but it's not ultimate. Jesus himself was not married and lived a completely sufficient, full, complete, significant, meaningful life. He didn't have to have the love of another human to complete him. And singles, you don't either. And likewise, in marriage, you don't have to have the perfect spouse to be complete or whole in your marriage. This whole thing is really about understanding and then receiving and then giving to others the love that God has given to you in the gospel. Does this make sense? Because we really don't want to miss the picture here. Yes, we're going to talk about some distinctions between husbands and wives, but if you miss the picture sort of on the stage of marriage, you're gonna miss the platform of why it was on the stage in the first place. It's always about God's love for you, his sufficiency for you, what he's done for you. And then either singleness or marriage represents this picture. Is this not beautiful? God's giving this because he wants the world to know something about him, that you can be single and stand on the sufficiency of the gospel and say, I am enough and no one else completes me than Christ. And if you're married, you say, yeah, my my marriage doesn't complete me. It's ultimately Christ. And because he sacrificed for me, I want to sacrifice for this person. All of it points to Jesus. And if we get that, guys, it changes everything about when we yearn for marriage or how we navigate thoughts about singleness. It changes everything. It changes everything. And guys, this is such good news for our church. It's so good news for you. And let me tell you why. Because we live in a culture that struggles with either two things. We either downplay marriage as if it's useless or we idolize marriage as if it's ultimate and neither are true. In the gospel, we find sufficiency, completion, and everything we need regardless of singleness or marriage. It's good news because he shows us what the foundation of marriage is really built on. If we truly understand this, then it keeps us from the heartbreak of acting like marriage is useless, leading to us abandoning marriage or acting like it's ultimate, leading us to think that marriage can fulfill our longings for love and belonging when only Christ 
can. So guys, I wanna show you there's a, there's a few things that are, our culture views marriage as that's really harmful for us. Often we think marriage, we see in our culture, really sees it as a commitment that's just based on feelings. And so what happens though if our feelings waver? And maybe you've been in that home where those feelings wavered and there's no longer a marriage and you've watched the brokenness of what happens when you base your marriage on feelings. So if they're based on feelings and the feelings waver, then so does the marriage. And God is good in his design for marriage. And so he doesn't base it or build it on feelings. He builds it on the love of God and the gospel. We also learn that marriage is not a commitment that we make to a person to make us happy. We don't get married just because that person makes us happy. Because what happens if tragedy strikes and our loved one gets hurt or sick or they can't function like they used to? Christian marriage isn't based on happiness because sometimes the circumstances we face are not happy ones. So God didn't design marriage on the foundation of happiness since happy circumstances aren't guaranteed, but the love of God for us is always guaranteed. And so we see that the purpose of marriage can't be to fulfill all your longings of love and romance and intimacy, because listen, what happens when you get older and your body changes and it doesn't look the way it used to, or your spouse passes away or you don't get married like you hoped? Is your longing for love and companionship unable to be fulfilled? Of course not. Of course not. Listen, God is wise. And so he didn't build marriage on the concept of shifting sands like feelings and happiness or romance like our culture does. And so we should follow his lead. He built marriage on the solid foundation of the gospel where Christ's love and his commitment and his unity to us at the cross are the basis of the love and the commitment and the unity pursued in marriage. Again, what we say often as our church is what God has done to you, he wants to do through you. And that's what we see in marriage. This is the profound mystery of marriage. This is the why he gives the definition because he has a story to portray. There's a play going on. And there's something that these two people in marriage are representing about God and his church And just like I don't want a picture of my wife to be marked on in my home to make that picture look differently, God gives us a definition of marriage so that we can see him clearly. And friends, that's why we don't change the definition of marriage because God wants us to see something about himself. And so friends, marriage can often bring up a lot of heartache, doesn't it? Or brings up a lot of questions about gender or identity or failure brings up a lot of hurt. But as we walk through this, I want you to see that no matter what heartache you are in or what you face or that you've experienced, there is something for you in this message, something of grace, something of love, something of truth about God's love for you, no matter where you've been on the spectrum with this situation. So let's keep moving forward. That's how we answered the question is what is marriage? Number one, It's this profound mystery, this play on display. But number two, how does the gospel impact marriage? Well, the gospel calls the husband to play a role. And God, the gospel calls the husband to love and to sacrifice and cherish his wife like Christ does for the church. 
The passage I'm about to read to you from verse 25 really highlights three things that the husband is to do because of what God has done for him. God has loved him, so he is to love. God has sacrificed for him, so he is to sacrifice. God cherished him, so he is to cherish her. What God does to you, he wants to do through you. And that is the purpose of marriage. Verse 25, it says this. It says, husbands, I want you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Paul's there. That's so key. That is so key. And here's why. Do you remember in verse 21, it, God called the whole church to submit to one another, to submit to one another, to mutually benefit each other. And do you realize in this passage that God is calling the husband to mutually submit to the wife? Do you see it? Because when we first read it, it just looked like the wife is supposed to submit and the husband just stands tall and saying, yes, do what I say. That's not what this passage says, does it? This passage is saying the husband is supposed to be like Christ. And what did Christ do? He submitted himself. He washed feet. He died on the cross. Do you see the mutual submission of verse 21? He says, church, submit to one another. Submit to one another for each other's benefit out of reverence for Christ. And here we see it right here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And husbands, give yourself up for her the way Christ gave himself up for you. And then he talks about Jesus for a moment. So he jumps off the narrative for a moment, the play, and he talks about Jesus. He says, listen, Jesus, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's the gospel. That's what God did for us when we heard the gospel. We were washed. Our sins were washed away. That's the word it's talking about here. That word sanctify, that means that God set us apart to be in a relationship with him. And we see that a little bit in proposal in marriage. You could pick anyone on this planet to propose to. And so that sanctify idea means to set apart, to unify with, to put a purpose on. And that's what you see engagement. You see two people selecting each other, but you see God is the initiator of it. And that's what we see in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, set her apart for himself. You see this in proposal or marriage. In the gospel, again, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, we keep going, so that God might sanctify or present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, that's what the gospel does. That God takes us he takes us apart into a relationship with him. He washes us by our sin. And then he puts his righteousness on us. He doesn't see what you did last night. He doesn't see what you struggle with in your addiction. He doesn't see the problems you have in your marriage or your singleness. He sees you as spotless. Guys, this changes everything. When, when you see how God sees you, you don't struggle with that guilt and shame that you feel because of your attraction, because of what you deal with, because of what you chose. How does God see you as spotless, as blameless, as loved, as chosen, as his. Do you see the beauty of that? And then he says, husbands, do that. Because I want everybody, I want everyone to be able to see something about me. And so marriage is really a role play so that people can see the picture of God's love for each person. And so we see, he says this, in verse 28, in the same way, in the same way, husbands should love their wives 
like they're their own bodies. Because remember, the two become one. So he who loves his wife, in a way, loves himself, it says. For no one hated his own flesh, but what does he do? He nourishes his body and he cherishes his body. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Guys, this paragraph is so radically different than any other ancient sources concerning marriage. Like if you pulled them all up from this time period, you would be blown away by the value God has for women and wives when that was not a cultural practice. Sadly, other writings during this time of this letter do not speak well or frequently of husbands loving their wives. See, in the ancient world, husbands had relatively few obligations to their wives beyond providing food and shelter. They were free to do as they pleased was sort of the cultural mantra. Whereas wives, on the other hand, they were sadly pressed into doing all sorts of domestic chores and doing whatever their husbands required of them. Wives were often kept from public life during this time. Typically, women even lived in one part of the house separate from the man. And in many cases, they didn't eat meals together. Conversations with people outside the house were kept at a minimum for wives and women. For a woman to even do her household work visible in her doorway was scandalous. By and large, women were sadly viewed as inferior and were given relatively little freedom. Wives were not treated as equals with their husbands and were only slightly in a better position than household servants. In a few places in history, like Sparta or Egypt, we see women were given a little bit more freedom and responsibility. But in most places, however, even if they were allowed to live at birth, this is terrible. Women were minimally educated, could not witness in a court of law, could not adopt children, couldn't make a contract, couldn't own property or inherit it, and were viewed as both Aristotle and Josephus said, in all respects to be inferior to a man. They were seen as less intelligent, less moral, the source of sin even in a continual temptation. What an awful, degrading, and sinful way to view and treat women. And it's right here in this moment that God enters history and reshapes the narrative through the gospel. Imagine being a married woman for a moment under these conditions in the ancient world. And you hear Galatians 3 for the first time because the letters were circulated through the church and you hear this for the first time. But now that faith in the gospel has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, neither is there Jew nor Greek, neither is there slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. The author is not saying there's no distinction between them, but what he's saying is that there's no value difference between them. And upon hearing this, your jaw would just drop out of your face. (laughs) Because for the first time, 
you are learning how God through the gospel actually views you as a woman. Both Jews and Greeks and slaves and free and men and women are now viewed as equal and beloved and valued and further even died for through Christ. All equality and significance were given because of what God has done. And therefore, all of those groups now have the same task of living lives defined and motivated by Christ and his love for us. So Paul's words here in Ephesians 5, it changed the picture dramatically for Christian women and wives, but not completely. There's still a work for us to be done, a gospel work to treat men and women equally, to love them, to make sure there's cared for. There's not a distribution of one gets cared for more than the other. But this picture began to send ripples throughout history. And even what we see in our culture and the great strides we've taken, yes, there's way more to go to value and care for women as equals. But there's something about Christianity that so ripples in society. And what you and I now see, we can trace back to how the gospel is getting us there and how the gospel has so much more to go to value women as equals. This is powerful. Because we see here in this text that women are preciously made in the image of God and Christ loved and sacrificed and cherished them so much that he lived and died in their place so they could have a place in significance with him when the culture said the opposite. Guys, I love the implications of the gospel. It brings so much good and so much healing to lives and culture. And it's because of Christ's model that God calls this husband to reflect Christ's love for their wives. And rather than men being guided by self-interest as culture taught, husbands were commended to place the well-being of his wife first and to give himself up for caring for her the way Christ did for him. So husbands in the room, husbands who are online, men who may desire to be husbands one day, let me ask you for a moment, do you reflect or seek to reflect the same type of love that Christ gave to you? Even if you're just anyone in the room, no matter marital status or just anyone, let me ask you, do you reflect this type of love in your relationships? This is not just for married people. Do you reflect this type of love that God has given to you? A love that 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about. And it says this, it says, God loves you and he is both patient and kind. Husbands in the room, are you patient and kind with your wife that way that God has been patient and kind to you? People who have roommates or coworkers, are you patient and kind to them the way that God has been patient and kind to you when you sin over and over and over again, but he gives his grace bigger and bigger and bigger for you? God's love, it says, does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant and it's not rude to you. Husbands, how do you speak to your wife? Further, how do you speak to your children? Are your words rude and rushed? Or are they kind and caring? This goes further than marriage though. It's God's love is not arrogant or rude to you. Think about the person that you are most frustrated with in your CG. You know their name. Don't say it out loud because it could be me. It'd be awkward. Who irritates you most in your family, in your community group? This tells us to not be rude to them because even when we were enemies of God, he didn't set out rudeness towards us, but redemption towards us. 
And so how do we pursue that redemption towards others who may be rude to us? 1 Corinthians 13 says, God's love does not insist on his own way to your detriment, but his ways are always for your good. Husbands, are you submitting yourself to care for your wife like this, to not insist your own way? Do you deny yourself of your time and your resources and self-gratification to express your love to your wife this way, the way that Christ did for you? Think about your roommates, think about your friends, think about your coworkers for a moment. Do you always have to insist in your way? Even if you do it in a joking way, does it always have to be about you being right? Insisting in your way all the time and it often is not at the best interest of someone else. Regardless of marital status, I want you to see that God did not insist in his own way because you know what that way would have been? It would have been just punishment and wrath towards us. But God's also his way was to give us grace and mercy and not treat us what we deserve. Guys, are we living like this in response to the gospel? Husbands, primarily in this text, you're on the target. Are you living this way towards your wife? Do you always have to dictate what things look like in your home telling your wife and not having conversation and barking orders? What's that look like in your home? What's it look like in your relationships? What's it look like with your children? Husbands, he's not irritable or resentful towards you. Are you the same way with others? Husbands, God does not rejoice at wrongdoing or rub your nose in it. Husbands, are you the same way? God rejoices with the truth and your faith in him and his love for you will bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. Husbands in this room and online, may this love, the love that God has displayed at the cross for you be deeply received that he sees you this way. He treats you this way. May it be deeply received and then widely displayed to your wives. And that goes for everyone. May you receive this type of love and patience and perseverance and truth telling and care and sacrifice of Jesus. May they be so received, but you can't help but to display that to everyone. This is a good word for our hearts. The gospel is the foundation for the husband to love and to sacrifice and to cherish his wife like Christ does for the church. So husbands, may you do the same thing for your wives. Future husbands, may you do the same thing for your wives. Christian in the room, may you do the same thing for every one. Amen? Third one is this, and this might be the hardest for us to navigate, but we've got to understand what God is getting at rather than what culture says that God is getting at. So don't get crazy on me. No cray-cray stuff, all right? Let's look at God's word and let's see the goodness of what he has here. Number three, that God calls the wife, the gospel calls the wife to respect and to mutually submit herself to her husband. Why? like Christ, like the church does for Christ. Now, again, don't get cray-cray on me, okay? Few issues create more debate and disagreement than these verses right here. Things get a little dicey in our modern era, and understandably so, when someone is encouraged to submit to anyone. For our culture prizes autonomy, and we're leery of authority, and understandably so. But as we peek back the curtain into the heart of God in this text, 
we'll see that God's intention for mutual submission is not to destroy autonomy or to have domineering authority, but it's to provide a a doorway of love and service that swings both ways to benefit both parties in mutual submission. Now listen, that's why verse 21 is so important to frame this message. It's so important. God calls the church to have each of us submit to one another. And then Paul's like, let me walk through what that looks like. Wives, you submit this way. Husbands, you submit this way. Then the next part is parents, you submit this way. Children, you submit this way. Then the next part is employers, submit this way. And employees, submit this way. It's a mutual caring for one another. Different roles being played, but a mutual caring and loving one another. Now, just as we talked about how husbands are to mutually submit to their wives by providing a loving and leadership and sacrificing and nourishing of their wives the way Christ does for the church, we now look at what the wife is called to and her mutual submission. And now Paul turns his attention in a gracious way, always pointing to the relationship between the church and Christ. Now, again, keep in mind, verse 21 from last week, God calls his people to mutually submit out of reverence for Christ. And this passage and the ones we'll cover in the following weeks all unpack what this mutual cared submission look like. And so we just looked at the husbands. Now let's look at the wives. Verse 22 through 24 says this. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and as himself, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I want you to see for a moment the structure of these two passages. The wives received three verses about what mutual submission to their husbands should look like. But the husbands received six verses of what mutual submission to their wives looked like. Well, why is that? Is it because men are more dense and need to hear double the amount of truth so half of it sinks in? Maybe that's the case, but I don't think so. Maybe from some of the experience of our wives in here, you might argue differently, but here we go. Let's just keep moving forward. But really, what's the reason why husbands get two times the amount of commands than the wives? Here's why. Because Paul is doing in this section, what Paul is doing about mutual submission is he's placing, a greater, he's placing a greater responsibility on the person who has had a leg up on strength and might in the home or the culture. And so he gives a lengthier instruction to the husbands rather than the wives and a longer command to the parents than the children. And he gives more guidance to employers than employees. Why? So that their position of power is not abused but rather it's used for the good and the service of others. And that's why he's reminding the husbands in this passage as he speaks to the wives about their role still. He says, husbands, you are to serve your wife, to look after her, to listen well to her, to speak tenderly yet truthfully to her. Just like a physical head sits on a physical body, that's what his point is. What's a head do? A head listens and it speaks and it cares and it guides, it sees. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Paul's point of using the term head of the wife is not giving husbands the privilege and the superiority over their wives. Too often men have sinfully concluded that women are theirs to control or they treat them like they are. The painful fact is that these verses have been used like a club to keep women in a defeated role in place. Christians and non-Christians alike use these statements like wives submit to your husbands and husbands the head of the wife for incredibly evil purposes. And if that's been your experience or what you've seen in your home, it's so the antithesis of what Christ would have here because that's not the kind of God he is. That's not what he wanted to model in marriage. I'm deeply sorry. And they were wrong, whatever model you saw. These statements have been misrepresented to mean that wives have some subservient role and their husbands always have to make the decisions. And so women have been viewed as property that husbands may treat as they wish. And let me say this loud and clear. That as your pastor and as this church, we stand against any line of this thinking and we will not tolerate this type of treatment of women at COA or in our community. Headship in this text has nothing to do with privilege. It's really about a leading servant responsibility that a husband has for his wife. Husbands are not bosses to be served and wives are not their unthinking servants called to do whatever they wish. The point of the headship analogy is the responsibility and leadership that husbands have to give themselves up for their wives, just as Christ did for him and that wife and for you and for the church. Therefore, husbands must not be must be givers and not takers. Husbands are to give up self-centeredness and any privilege of being head in order to promote the well-being of their wives. They're to love their wives as themselves, recognizing that the unity of their marriage makes wives like their own bodies, if you would, as verse 28 states. And so husbands should nurture and to care for their wives so that they are established and enhanced in their marriage. And when wives are enhanced, so are their husbands and the two partners that are assumed to be one, mutually enable each other and grow. And it's because of this truth that wives are encouraged to mutually submit and respect their husbands. And just a side note, um, I love the clarity here for the protection of women in this passage. It does not say all women submit to all men. Nope. It says wives submit to your own husbands as they are to serve and to sacrifice for you. Do you see how it works together? You're not tripping over each other for power. You're tripping over each other for care. Man, how cool would that be? You're outdoing one another of love and care and sacrifice. These verses have nothing to do with the inferiority of women. 
nor does it grant husbands this position of superiority over their wives. I would even suggest the logic of this text dictates Christian men should stand up against the victimization of all wives. They should push against victimization of all wives and women around the world. Listen, the freedom of Christianity brought to women something beautiful, and yet it was confusing at first. Wives, when they began to hear how the gospel laid this picture out, was beautiful but confusing. They heard that they were equal and valuable, yet they weren't experiencing this in their own home, and this created tension in a culture that's misrepresented women. And so with the whole section of scripture that we're unpacking, Paul is setting the record straight and he's providing a path of clarity by encouraging mutual submission, a submission on the wife's part and of the self-giving on the part of the husband with both partners having their lives determined by and motivated by what? They're not, not their own needs, but by Christ's own giving of himself. So husbands in the room, love your wives as Christ loved the church and give yourself up for her and you nourish her and you cherish her as Christ has done for you. And wives, would you respect your husband seeking to lead and love you as the church does for Christ? and mutually submit to lovingly serve and honor him in a similar way that the church does for Christ. And if both parties do this, your marriage, church, your marriages, and even past this, if you live this type of way in any relationship, your marriage serves as a powerful declaration of the gospel to the world showing others the beautiful covenant relationship that Christ has for his church. So whether you're married in this room or whether you're single, let's remember that this text isn't really about some ultimate relationship called marriage. In fact, the theme of marriage slips into the background when you consider that this passage is really about God's love for you and God's love through you. The reality of Christ's love for you is expressed in his willingness to die on your behalf. Let us live with that type of love. We've got to receive it first. No matter what you've done or where you've been or how you act, no matter what, God loved you enough to take your sin and put it on himself and then clean you and then stay with you no matter what. And that type of love should fill your heart so much that you want to tell others about this God, a God that satisfies you and belongs with you and that loves you and that never quits on you. It's unconditional. And that love begins to change the way that you love others and the way you see yourself. No matter how much knowledge we have about Christ and his work, his love surpasses even that knowledge. The more we know of his love, the more we are amazed by it. So we end with this scripture. So then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Will he not only do that, but give graciously to us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, Father, who is indeed, who is interceding and praying for us even now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ. 
Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And let us love others this way. 